What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark State. And a huge thank you, as always, to our patrons over on Patreon and our academates in the Bestseller Academy. If you want to support this podcast, you can do it by going uh, to Bestseller Experiment forward slash Bestseller Experiment bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support or something. There's a link in the show notes. You can do that. <laughs> and if you want to know more about the Academy, come on, we're coming up to 370 odd episodes. You know, you, the links are there, people. Uh, if you want to find out more about the Academy, go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com or something like that. I don't know. The link is the internet. Google it. Google it. <laughs> Actually, if you Google Bestseller Academy, it does come up first in Google. At least where there I we am. Go. Who yeah. knows? Who, yeah, knows? who knows, knows where you are in the rest I of the don't. world? But <laughs> Mr. Stay, how, how's your week been, sir? How are you doing? Very good. Professional as always. I've had, actually, I've had a weird week. A couple really? of strange things have happened. Very, very strange things. I was, um, I was at an 80th birthday party on Friday, uh, as you do. Uh, it was a golf club, very posh golf club. Nice. Um, and it was one of those parties where I knew no one. I barely knew the person whose party it was. It was a friend of a friend of Claire's. So, I, you know, I'm sitting there, we're chatting with people, and my phone pings, and I have a look, and I've been tagged by a guy called Jim McLeod, who does the Ginger Nuts of Horror podcast, which I've been <laughs> on and thoroughly enjoyed going on this. If you love horror, Ginger Nuts of Horror, do check it out. And Jim said, um, someone just mentioned your film on Coronation Street. I was like, oh, what? What? What now? Um, for people outside of the UK, Coronation Street, I think it's the longest-running TV soap opera. It's been going since 1960 in the UK, and it's about the goings-on in this little street in uh, in the uh, near Ma- it's supposed to be near Manchester, isn't it? Fictional yeah. street, uh, and it's it's just you know. In its heyday, it had tens of millions of people watching it. Biggest soap opera ever. Won all kinds of awards, um, and it's still going. I was like. A, what film and what was the context? I, I my my wife was with me. She said, I bet that felt nice, didn't it? Saying which one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, oh, and of anyway, all the many I, I've had, it's like, oh, let's just both, go. Both I'll, just them. Them, I'll just get them a book out. <laughs> just get them a book out and flick through. Yeah, one, no, that's two. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So he said, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's your film Unwelcome, which is coming out in Halloween 2022. And uh, I was like, what anyway i managed to uh the next morning because we had late night i I checked it the next morning i went on to um because it's on itv and they have this play which is the world's worst playback player ever right the bbc (laughs) iplayer terrific the itv player my god if you just want to watch endless adverts the same three adverts again and again and again (laughs) try the itv player anyway that's an aside uh so i'm going uh, after about 20 minutes of watching the same three adverts i managed to scroll through to the bit because my sister watches it. She said, yeah, yeah. It came up where these people were sitting in a restaurant. And so it's a scene where you've got these parents and their daughter and the boyfriend they don't approve of. And they're chatting away. And they say, what are you doing this weekend? And the boyfriend says, oh, I want to go and see this uh, sick new horror film, Unwelcome. Uh, And the dad says, yeah, I've seen the trailer. It looks really cool. We should all go and see it together. And I'm I'm sitting there going... (laughs) What? <laughs> and of course, it clicked. It clicked because the film was supposed to be out that week. It was yes. supposed to come out on St. Patrick's Day, but because of Omicron, 
uh, Warner's decided to move it to Halloween, which I think is a wise decision. But mm. obviously what's happened is the writers who are working way in advance are going, okay, we need our kids to go and see a movie. What's a cool horror movie they can see? That we're- Oh, excellent. Okay, there's a film called Unwelcome. Let's have a look at the trailer. Yeah, that looks good. So they've, they've that's what I think happened. Of course, it was shot maybe before or written before we moved the film. Mm. So that's why it's there. That's so bonkers. It's completely unreal. <laughs> and the thing is, I, 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 you know, my mum loves Coronation Street. When I, when I, you know, growing up, we would always watch it. And these are in the days of Hilda Ogden when it was at its absolute peak. Oh, yeah, peak. the crinkly yeah. uh, tights, yeah, yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. so, so a hair and curlers and stuff like that. So to be on what is a national institution, to get oh. a mention like that, it's just phenomenal. It's just, Bonkers. it's just, it's just like you know, seven months too soon. But <laughs> I know. Well, it, you can never start your publicity early enough, right? I mean, I think, I think you know. But yeah, it's just the the most weirdest thing because I mean, and when you say for people in you know other parts of the world, I've got to tell you, Mark, Coronation Street over here, there's a hardcore group of Canadians. Really? They, oh, it's a, it's it's like a. You know, I think it's because there's a lot of kind of, you know, there's many, everyone you meet in Canada says, oh, I've got an English granny or I've got an English auntie or I've got an English grandfather. Or I, you know, I used to live in England and moved across when I was two or three. And it's really interesting because I think there's that, there's still that real connection. And so a lot of Canadians watch Coronation Street and, Mm. and it still is. I'm pretty certain. I used to look at the TV ratings back in the day before you know, they used to, when they used to be scheduled programs. Remember those days, all those years mm. ago? Oh, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always remember <laughs> EastEnders and Coronation Street were always the two most watched shows. Yeah. In And we were talking like an average of 20 million yeah, viewers yeah. a week. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, But, you know, it was, it's incredible. Because what, what struck me when I saw, because I saw a clip on your Facebook page, mm. and I was, I was like, what? What is that? And... Um, <laughs> But what the thing that I thought I went to is because you know when you look go into watch like Mission Impossible in the cinema, mm-hmm. you know, and and Tom Cruise flips open his Mac book, you know, <laughs> and pulls out his latest iPhone, whatever twenty seven or whatever. Um, I thought it was product placement. I thought I wonder if that actually goes on nah. in soap operas where like film companies are now you know getting stuff put in the script. But from what you're saying, it sounds like it was just like it was just That's- like. A, being being like with the time and like making it making as far, it relevant. as far as I'm, I mean the thing is so it's on six days a week I think yeah. so it's and it's always a scrabble for content so they go okay we need we need our kids to go and see a film what's the film uh, have a look at the schedules what's coming out in March there's a horror film great lovely all right put that in what's right, right right so I, I think it was much more like that I don't that's think amazing there was as far as I'm aware there was any kind of premeditation yeah, I just never- feel I think it's brilliant. I just, I just feel sorry for those kids who are going to turn up at the cinema and it's not on. Because <laughs> the the big, I say big in air quotes, the big film that's coming out in that week uh, is the Nan movie. You know, Catherine Tate has a character, the Nan. Oh, yeah, you're kidding what me. a liberty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah there's yeah, a yeah. feature film about that. She's got so a that's movie. On oh, in, my gosh. Yeah, so that's on instead. So anyway. My goodness. They can go see Batman, I suppose. <laughs> well, legend legend has it, you know, there'll be there'll be queues of people around the block this weekend disappointed. <laughs> but but when they find out that it's a Halloween movie, then then they'll have October sorted, right? And then exactly, there'll be the big yeah. anticipation build yeah. and I think it's brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. I mean, where'd you go from there? I mean, you start a Coronation Street. What, what I mean, you can't you can't go bigger than that. I suppose the Simpsons. The Simpsons. Yes. The Simpsons. I was going to say, what would be what would be your dream? <laughs> yeah. Your dream mention of the movie on a TV show. Simpsons would be pretty. Cool, I think. I think any kind of Simpsons parody or reference would be um, because I. Uh, you know, I love the Channel 4 series Dairy Girls, and we have a Dairy Girl in Unwelcome. We have Jamie Lee O'Donnell in it, and mm. uh, I follow a couple of them on social media. And the Simpsons had an ice cream parlour called Dairy Girls. So there was a kind of a pun oh, reference. So and they're, they're all mega excited about that. So that that yeah. is that is the sign that you've arrived, I think. Well, I think the, the quote that I like the most like from one of one of the people on your page was say, you know you've made it when dot dot dot. There's not many people that can claim to be name checked on Coronation Street, but brilliant. Yeah. Congratulations. Bloody, That's bloody exciting. Great. That's so brilliant. Oh, fantastic. Now you're gonna have to pay you're going to have to pay it forward, of course. And in your next movie, you're going to have to make some reference to Coronation Street and keep the whole thing going. You know what? 
Maybe not the next one, but the one after them. That's a definite there you possibility. Go. Just drop yeah. that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like Excellent. That. Excellent stuff. Excellent. <laughs> and people are starting to gather back as we as we record this in, in March 2022. Feels like people are starting to gather again. There's there's maybe maybe writing groups that are able to get back together. We've had a writing group like, you know, years and years and then it kind of stopped during covid and you know there's rumors of, of people starting to get back together again it's exciting isn't it it's nice to know that you know we can get back out and see people again and uh yeah i uh, saw I've, I've seen a couple of authors going to writing retreats i've just um i'm going to be at the rna conference uh this summer as well if anyone's going to that i'm going to be at the london book fair on the thursday um, so yeah, I'm starting to get invites to stuff where there are real people. Also, next week, stay tuned, folks. I'm going to have details of the book launch for the Ghost of Ivy Barn, which is going to be at Waterstones in Canterbury. Uh, it's going to be so much fun. So stand by for that. I'll have some more details next week of that. So yeah, very exciting, very exciting. And you said something about copy edits as well that have come yes. back, have they? Yes, was so that, that nerve wracking moment when you got those in. It is always when you when you click the open on the document and just wonder how many comments and changes and amendments there are. But actually, there are fewer on this one than any book I've ever done before. So I'm clearly learning something. I'm getting something right. Um, but my my copy editor Lisa, who is just amazing, she's uh, she doesn't miss a trick. She absolutely does not miss a trick. Lisa Rogers, she's absolutely brilliant. And uh, but we did have a, a query about strychnine poisoning. Um, which, <laughs> which we couldn't figure out. So we went on the BXP group, and it was uh, Christopher Wills who got in touch, and then Chandra Finity, who are uh, both academates as well, the bestseller academy. Mm. Christopher recommended a book called Deadly Doses, which is out of print now, but I managed to find a copy which which lists what all the poisons do to the body, which was great. Um, and <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's manna from heaven. Um <laughs> If you're a writer, it's, and Chandra is a, a pathologist, uh, so she was able to sort of back all that up as well. So uh, they're both getting a thank you in the next book in the acknowledgements. Oh, so that was really fantastic. handy. Um, but yeah, I did. I did feed it back to Lisa and said you might find this handy, and she's she's immediately ordered a copy of that book. And she was saying, she was saying, you know writer's search histories to think these things can really incriminate us and lisa said on the day most likely to have incriminated me i had to research the following how long it would take for human hair to decompose at a certain depth in lake water of a certain temperature oh uh, the relative decompositional properties of several kinds of rope if submerged in the same lake uh, the marks particular knives might leave on bones and anthrax. Oh. So that's that's the sort of thing you know you have to oh look up as a writer. Goodness, and yeah. a copy editor editor has to check all that because people will know. People out there will know that, you know, and you'll get letters if it's wrong and it needs to be right. Here's here's a question for our, our audience out there. Has anyone ever got a knock on the door or an interesting email <laughs> from the authorities? I'm curious. It mm. must have happened at some point because you know how do you how do you differentiate between whether you're doing that research from a book or yeah. you're actually doing it for your own education? I mean, it's just crazy. Google Chrome has private mode; it doesn't have an author mode. You know, you just, I'm just researching. I'm just researching. <laughs> I thought you said Google Crime for a minute there. I thought, oh, is this a whole new oh, search engine? That's a good idea. It's a whole new yeah. search engine, which is that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable stuff, but no, that is. But well, let's let's dive into our interview this week because there's a yes. lot about research in this interview, and it's hey, fascinating. The, the debate about research continues, and um, but it's a fascinating for anyone who's an Agatha Christie's fan. You are going to oh, absolutely yeah. love this. So, Mark, tell us about our our author guest this week, Nina de Gramont. Well, before we talk about Nina, I just want to give everyone a bit of historical context because not everyone knows about this. But on December 3rd, 1926, Agatha Christie disappeared. So her husband had been having an affair with a woman called Nancy Neal, and he'd asked Agatha for a divorce uh, in the August of that year. Uh, but in December, when Agatha disappeared, they were still together. But clearly things got a bit out of hand because Agatha got in a car and just vanished. The car was found parked above a chalk quarry. It had a driving license in there and some clothes, and it just became a sensation. Rewards were offered. More than a 1,000 police officers were involved. 15,000 volunteers searched the area. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle 
gave one of Agatha Christie's gloves to a spirit medium. That came to nothing. Uh, it even made the front page of the New York Times. Then, after 11 days, she was found alive and well at the Old Swan Hotel in Harrogate, which I think I've stayed at. Um, mm. I went to the Harrogate Crime Festival a few years ago, and the publisher booked me in, and I think it's the same hotel, <laughs> I think. Um, and she was registered under the name Mrs. Tressa Neal, Neil, same surname oh. as her husband's lover. Now, she ne Agatha never spoke about it. It's not in her autobiography. She left it out. <laughs> um, funny that. Two doctors were convinced she had genuinely lost her memory. So the only person who knows what really happened is Agatha herself, and it's a secret she took to her grave. So our guest today, Nina de Gramont, who's a fantastic author. She's written books like Meet Me at the River, Every Little Thing in the World, Gossip of the Starlings. She's written YA stuff. Uh, she's now written a book called The Christie Affair, and it tells the story from a fictional point of view. It was a Reese Witherspoon book club choice, and it's just been a sensation, and people are loving it. So we discuss, we discuss the whole Agatha Christie thing. We talk about choosing a point of view when writing about real events, researching remotely, and writing, I was surprised by this, writing for Marvel. <laughs> so intriguing. Let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the lovely Nina de Gramont. Nina, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's our absolute pleasure, and this is such a, an incredible book to to discuss because this is it's based on real events. It's based on a very mysterious event. Anyone who knows about Agatha Christie knows about this extraordinary uh, time. In in 1926, Agatha Christie disappeared for 11 days. Uh, and what I love, you've written this fantastic novel, The Christie Fair. And folks watching this on YouTube, let's just take a moment to luxuriate in that cover, which is all lovely and shiny and absolutely gorgeous. But I just just here on the inside is 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 the shout line. In 1926, Agatha Christie disappeared for 11 days. Only I know the truth of her disappearance. I'm no Hercule Poirot. I'm her husband's mistress. That that is how to grab the reader, Nina. Nina, welcome to the show. It's um, where did this all come from? Were you a lifelong Agatha Christie fan, or is this something you only discovered quite recently? Um, I discovered about her disappearance in 2015. I read an article by Matthew Thompson in the lineup, and I thought it was very interesting. I was not a particular Agatha Christie fan. I had seen movies based on her novels, but I had never read any of them myself. Um, but I just was so taken by the idea of somebody so iconic and so successful and who we think of as so um, impervious, I guess, or I thought of her as so impervious to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And um, to think of her at a time when she was so vulnerable that this could happen was very moving to me. Well, this is what I love is, is the point of view you've chosen for this book because, you know, Agatha Christie's husband announced that he was leaving her for a younger woman, Nancy Neal, who was 10 years younger. And Agatha Christie was only 36 when this happened. Uh, and so you, it's an in, such an inspired choice to start the story from the point of view of Nancy Neal. Was that a big aha moment for you? Was that your, your way in? You know, I think I knew right away that I wanted to narrate it from a version of Nancy. I created a fictional Nancy Neal because I wanted to change a lot of things about her. And the best way to do it seemed to be to just start from scratch with an entirely new person. Um, but I knew I wanted to narrate it from the mistress's point of view, um, partly because I knew that imaginings of the story had been told before, but I hadn't seen that I didn't discover that way in when I was looking at other interpretations of it. Um, and also because I thought it would be really interesting to sort of do a combination of looking at the horror of having the stranger have this really intimate glimpse into your marriage uninvited um, and into your personal most vulnerable moments. Um, but I also like the idea of creating a scenario where such two natural rivals could kind of end up forming a kind of alliance and maybe even a friendship. It's interesting you you, you were talking about sort of fictionalizing Nancy because I don't think we know very much about her, do we? You, you probably didn't have much to go on in the first place, did you? 
I didn't. Um, the things I was able to find out about her was, I mean, that she came, I wanted there to be a much bigger class divide between her and the Christie's. Um, but Nancy Neal was um, pretty middle class. Her father was an engineer. Um, her parents lived in Croxley Green. Is that the correct way to say it? It it's, it sounds sounds fine to me, Nina. Sounds fine to me. <laughs> I've only just learned that Berkshire is called Berkshire. So Berkshire, always- yes. <laughs> um, and she did have three sisters, which is one thing that I've kept um, for Nan because I wanted her to Nan O'Day is what I renamed the mistress, and I wanted her to have um, I wanted her to be somebody who. Um, wasn't naturally at odds with other women who really, you know, sought out friendships and was a girl's girl, I guess you could say. Fantastic. I've read somewhere that you you started with, a, in your own words, a messy first draft with very little research and that you didn't want facts and data and geography to intrude. And it's interesting because we had Ian Rankin on the show a while ago, and he said that he does all his research on the second draft. He just wants to get the story down. Is that what you were thinking? You just wanted to get the story down and then polish later on? Yes. Years ago, I had um, attempted to write a novel about Emily Dickinson, and I made what turned out to be a mistake of doing a huge amount of research first. And I, you know, went to Amherst and toured the homes where she lived and read a lot of books and her letters and, you know, went to the library to get her sister's journals. And then when I sat down to write the book, I didn't have a story. All I had was maybe I could have written a new biography, but I I didn't have anything. So I said this time I really wanted to not worry about getting things wrong and not find out a lot of things that I could regurgitate. you know, instead, I really concentrated on creating a story of my own and um, did the research down the road and, you know, had to change a lot of things, made some pretty harrowing mistakes that I had to <laughs> totally restructure the story around. But um, but I, 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 if I would advise anybody who's interested in writing a novel based on facts or rooted in history to do it that way it's it's very liberating and you know you can always fix things so presumably you you know you've got Agatha you've got Nina there's there's a kind of connection between the two is in that first draft what were you focusing on was it kind of an emotional connection between them an emotional core what was it that, that that kept you going um I was very interested in Nan's story which was rooted in you know sort of growing up poor and being affected by the First World War, possibly more than um, people from more privileged backgrounds, even though, of course, everybody was very adversely affected by the First World War in England. Um, But she also has um, a history where um, she was pregnant at 19 and unmarried and ends up in a mother and baby home in Cork, Ireland. Um, And I think for the first draft, that's what I really focused on creating um, and working on the sort of divide between um, Agatha's life experience as a more privileged person who had, you know, never sort of stepped out of the bounds of societal expectations in that way, um, who was, you know, very respectable wife and mother. That's interesting because, you know, you're talking about the Emily Dickinson book where you had all the facts, but you didn't have a story. But here, You've got the story first, and then the facts kind of are, are a, a sort of sprinkling that you add afterwards, which is um, such a great way to approach this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you always um, you you have to get. I think once you're into drafts that are further down the road, you have to be pretty um, diligent about double and triple checking things, and at the same time, you have to realize there's no. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure there are mistakes in the book. Um, I've already got people emailing me about typos. I'm sure somebody soon will email me about some horrible historical gaffe. Well, this is this is the thing. You're you're um, you know, you're writing about probably the best selling author in the world, very very beloved, and with a fan base that um, you know, has expectations. And of course, you're fictionalizing a reality. Christie claimed to remember nothing. And she doesn't mention it in her autobiography. And fans will have their own theories. So how how daunting was it to to, to fill in those gaps? 
You know, it's funny because um, I'm, I'm being asked that question a lot. So I've been thinking about it a lot. And the thing about that fear is it's a later stage fear. When you first sit down to do it, it's just you and the page and you don't even know if anyone's ever going to read it. Um, and I certainly tried to um, be respectful. Like for example, one of the I, one of the early biographies of her I bought, I started to read, and I realized it was a very sort of unauthorized, trying to dig up the dirt sort of biography. So I put that aside. And I really, um, for most of the anecdotes and most of the descriptors and things like that in the book, I used her autobiography because I wanted to present her in a light that I could at least guess she might want to be presented in. Um, but honestly, those fears didn't really kick in until I was closer to publication. Um, and, you know, I realized there's never any pleasing everybody. Um, and, you know, I, I know that people will have expectations in terms of how they want the story to unfold and also their, you know, great attachment to a deservedly beloved person. Um, so, you know, just sort of put on the armor and try to pay more attention to the people who are pleased with it. <laughs> As part of your um, preparation for this, you also uh, read Agatha's greatest hits, uh, which must have been a real treat. Was there anything that you, that you learned from her writing that you, you took through to writing this book? Yes. So I was not expecting, when I started reading her novels, the level of social commentary and also her ability. But I knew I wanted to put sort of Christie-esque elements into the novel, so it was partly an homage. but. I think she is right on par with Jane Austen as far as presenting a character, even if it's a very secondary character, and writing one line that it can be funny or it can be poignant, but it just captures the person in such a layer of depth um, that I was really, and it was something I, I, I attempted to start, to, you know, I tried to do it a little bit in the book as an imitation of her, but honestly, I think that's, you know, um, trying to, I don't know what the comparison is. I'm, it, it's such a virtuoso skill um, that I, I don't know that I accomplished it, but that it was, it was fun to note that and fun to see, you know, a lot of times when you read a really great author, you realize the things that you're not doing or the things that you're writing might be lacking. And it's fun to attempt it, at least. <laughs> it's kind of, um, I mean, sometimes we, we 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 read these authors and they can inspire us, but there are other times when you just think, I'm never. Obviously, I'm never going to be Agatha Christie. You know, I can never reach. <laughs> I kind of love, but, but but that is that is her genius, isn't it? It really. I I heard somewhere. I think it was Brian Aldiss uh, once said that uh, Agatha Christie told him that she would write everything up to the final chapter without knowing who did it then pick then she would pick the least likely suspect and then go back and make changes to frame them for the murder and i think there's so, i think the secret to her is she just has so much fun with her characters in in bringing them to life and they are so vivid and it, there is a, there is a genius to that and i think it's um and the fact that over you know nearly 100 years later these these books still stand the test of time really says something doesn't it yeah, I think it's a combination of, you can tell um, from her plays, from a lot of the very sort of cinematic dialogue heavy scenes in the novels, and especially from her nonfiction, that she was somebody who was just really willing to be on the verge of a good laugh mm -hmm. and like to laugh at herself and at the world. Um, and I think that's part of the reason her books are so enduring. And also I think she was very curious and about other people and other cultures um, in a way that really transcended the time and place she was from. Mm, absolutely. Very much so. Now, this is something you, I, I don't know if, if this was written before lockdown. I'd be interested to know because you, you can follow Agatha's footsteps over here. I'm sure there are even tours that, you know, were you able to do that? Were you able to come over and, and, and no, you're shaking your head. <laughs> no, I, I, I wasn't. I mean, I, um, my hope was that I 
couldn't afford to make the trip before I sold the book. So my plan was to write the book. If I sold it, you know, make the trip and come to England before I did whatever edits my editor wanted me to do. But the book sold, I think, on February 20-something, 2020. So those hopes were dashed. So, you know, I I, I have been to England and Ireland, but years ago um, as a student, um, and I used a lot of a lot of maps and a lot right. of um, pictures and visuals and things like that. Okay, well, uh, you know, I, I had to ask because it doesn't, you know, you, that doesn't show. It doesn't show that you weren't there. The, the you know, the, it feels real. The atmosphere is real. So it it definitely comes across, which is. Um, this is a debate we have a lot on this podcast, which is research. Do you know if you're writing about mountaineering, do you need to go and climb a mountain? And obviously, that that might help. You know, you can always be surprised by that kind of level of research. But sometimes, certainly when you're describing something, you you just need to give the reader enough to, you know, join the dots in their own head, don't you? Yes, and I have to say, it was really helpful reading um, Christie novels in terms of wanting to capture the time and place, because she's not an author who does, you know, great, huge paragraphs of description. It's just like well-placed details and, you know, the name of a plant. And, you know, I, my, my father is French. I spent a lot of time in France growing up and um, I'm from the Northeast of the United States. And anytime I've been to Europe or England, it sort of reminds me of that geography. And, um, you know, you can you, you can find a lot about, you know, double checking. Would this bird be here? What kind of flowers bloom this time of year in Yorkshire? I watch a lot of Downton Abbey because that's where <laughs> <laughs> take place in the same. But although I don't think Downton Abbey is filmed in Yorkshire, is it? Is it, is it filmed? Um, it's, uh, it's I think it's Highclere Castle, isn't it? Uh, which I'm not entirely... It's in the middle of England anyway, so close enough, close enough, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So uh, let's talk about your um, how it all started for you. And, and uh, you know, this is your fourth novel. Uh, when when did you... When did it, oh, I, I understand you write under other names as well. So can t- tell us where it all started for you, Nina. Sure. So um, I pretty much always wanted to be a writer. Um, In college, I had a a brief stint of majoring in theater, which is actually why I was in England. I studied theater in London for a while. Um, But then I realized I had horrible stage fright and switched to English. Um, And, you know, at that point, realized that the creative avenue I wanted to pursue was writing. Um, And, you know, I just did what a lot of people did. I graduated from college. I worked in bookstores. I took night classes in writing. Um, Then I got a graduate degree in writing. Um, My first book was a collection of short stories. Um, Then I had a baby, stopped writing for a little while. Um, Then started writing again, published a novel. Um, I've got a few novels for um, young adults, for teens. Um, And then the two novels I wrote under different names. Um, One I wrote for Marvel Comics about the X-Men character Rogue. And actually that was like a good, that was good preparation for how people might react to being upset about my depiction of Agatha Christie because (laughs) you cannot please everybody in the Marvel universe. I'm here to tell you. Um, And then I wrote another young adult novel um, for Penguin. They had an idea for a novel and hired me to write it. And I decided to write that under a different name just to kind of differentiate it from my other work. That's fascinating. Writing anything for Marvel is, uh, yeah, I can imagine it's, it's, it, it can be both a joy and a kind of a poison chalice because there are those those expectations. What uh, what was your approach to? Because Rogue is a character as well that's that's been depicted in quite different ways in in sort of the Marvel history. Were you allowed a kind of creative freedom to to play with that, or, or were you given kind of very strict guidelines on what you could and couldn't do? Um, you know, to an extent, I was given freedom, but they would, and it wasn't so much that they would. You know, they wanted it to be an origin story. So I did sort of stick to the Anne-Marie, you know, mm-hmm. backstory that they'd given her. 
Um, but pr- they pretty much let me do what I wanted, but little things like, you know, I had her smoking in an early draft and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. Rogue does not uh, smoke. Right. So little sort of <laughs> unexpected things like that. But in, in general, they gave me a lot of free reign. It was pretty fun, but I mean, I had to write that novel very fast. I think they gave me six weeks to turn the original draft in. So Wow. And that was that was a little lesson in in writing too, sort of doing everything fast forward. Wow. What was your what was your sort of daily word count on something like that? And and was it something that you planned out ahead or did you just jump in? You know, I did not plan it ahead. I was I had to sort of um write things to get the job. And then there was so I had to write, I think I had to write you know, a few pages and kind of a brief outline to get the job. And then I was waiting to hear whether I got the job. And I thought, I know if I were smart, I'd start writing it now. But at the same time, I refused to write it and then not be hired to do it. Um, So I waited until I was hired. And then the way I've always written is to write, you know, a messy, horrible, mistake-laden first draft and then go back and fix it. Um, and I just thought I'm I'm gonna stick to that method. And in order to do it, I'm just gonna have to write like 20 pages a day. So I did. I would wake up in the morning and write 10 pages and then I would take a break and then I'd write another 10 pages um wow. until I had a first draft. I took a few days off from that first. It was exactly the same process I used for every other thing I've written except for in a really short time frame. <laughs> would you do it again? Um Maybe. I mean, it was kind of fun, honestly. And, and, you know, even though I wasn't, I think it even said on the cover that, you know, it was Nina de Gramont's pen name. um, There was a nice sort of protective anonymity to it. I wasn't as anxious about the reception. I I do think if I did it again, I might just do it, you know, not, not admit to anybody. It would be, it'd be fun to really have a pseudonym and hide behind it and not, you know, just sort of watch watch the show untouched. Like a superhero. You have your your alter alter ego. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've never thought of it like that before. Fantastic. Uh what's coming next from you, Nina? Um honestly, Mark, I don't know yet. Um you know, I've been very I sort of started writing a novel and then put it aside. I don't know if I'll go back to it <clears throat> but the past six months or so. I've had to write a lot of short pieces and publicity pieces for this book. Um, and I teach at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And that's been pretty um, work involved, especially during these COVID times. Yeah, so yeah. I, I don't have a definite plan for what's happening next yet. Okay. Well, we salute all teachers during these very, very difficult times. Um, folks, folks, again, let's just, YouTube viewers, just look at that cover, and the US cover is gorgeous as well, isn't it? They're, you know, they're Thank you. Uh, they're both beautiful. Um, Michael Storings designed the US cover, and Neil Lang did the Christie Affair. And I mean, both of them. I love Neil's design so much. And the first thing I thought when I saw it was, he really read the book, and he really, <laughs> sort of, you know, saw an image that kind of got to the heart of it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just love it. Wonderful stuff. Well, Nina, thank you so much for speaking to us, and we look forward to whatever comes next. And, folks, grab your copy of The Christie Affair. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. Uh, and, Nina, speak to you again soon. Thank you so much, Mark. It was a pleasure. I'll tell you what, when you hear intriguing stories like that, mm. you know, it's almost like Agatha was doing this to enable authors to just have fun with it <laughs> <laughs> in the future. That- that's a good it's kind of like, like her that. last, her last kind of thriller that she leaves for everyone is for everyone else to debate. But I love, I love the fact that you know that Nina's taken this story and you know tried to put her version of events together mm. and turned it into almost like an Agatha Christie novel in many ways. Yes, yes, and what I think is great is that she, she's given us a way into the story. She's she's taken. Nan, Nan, Nancy Neal, who we know very little about, and she's fictionalised us. She's taken some liberties, but she's given us, the reader, a way into the story, not only as an observer, but as a point of view, as a kind of foot in the door. And instead of it just being kind of a dry historical recounting of what happened, there's an emotional 
heft to it as well. They, you know, we're involved, we're engaged, and I think it's so clever. And it's one of those things that um, you see it in the reviews. People really get hooked by this. So it's, mm. uh, yeah, it's a very clever way of getting into it. And I think if you're ever going to do a book about real events, real world events, you can you can take real people. And take a few liberties. Don't go, you know, we've we've talked about the legal implications of going too far with that, but you can you can sort of get get away in there. Um, someone who's really good at that is uh, oh, who's the guy who wrote L.A. Confidential? I've got I forgot his name now, um, but uh, he's terrific at that, taking real world events and 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 seeing it from a from a character who could be there in the background, the person standing behind the president, the person standing behind Marilyn Monroe or whatever, and, uh, you know, and and just seeing it from their point of view as, as someone who's involved, um, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, tangentially has some skin in the game as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you're thinking of James Elroy, I'm guessing. Thank you very yeah. much for Googling that while Thank I was you, chatting. Mr. Google. <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> Just pulled it out, plucked it out of my, my Google chip in my brain. But um, yeah, it's fan- it's fascinating. And it would have been far too easy to have just picked the story from Agatha Christie's point of view. Yeah, I think the, it was a really neat... I mean, in some ways, it's a lot more challenging because there's probably very, like you say, very little information about about you know, I, th- I think lover, but. I think I think Nina would have upset more Agatha fans if she'd done that, and that's why I think it's such a clever thing to mm. do. Because, and we can talk about reader expectations in a minute, but uh, I think everyone has a version of Agatha Christie. Well, there are interviews with Agatha, and I think to go into her point of view would have been maybe a step too far. And it robs the story of the mystery as well. I think there's still that element of mystery there. The, some of the things we don't want, you know, we we think we want the uh, the mystery solved. But whenever you show someone how a magic trick is done, it's often quite banal. And it's, you know, it was actually over here all the time or behind yeah, my hand. Yeah, it spoils or my it sleeve. in some ways. It spoils it. it, absolutely mm. spoils it. So she's retained the mystery but made us part of the story, which is, uh, you know, much more engaging, I think. Now, this was the second time recently that we've heard from an author that that kind of left the research or was going to do a lot of the research, but filled the blanks in afterwards. And it really got me thinking. I mean, I always loved it when it, you know, and you referenced, you know, in Rankin kind of talking about it, but mm-hmm. it that really landed home, this idea of like, don't get sucked into the research too early on. And, and it makes me realize as well, when we think about how many authors struggle to get to the end of the first draft, just as the first massive kind of milestone of their, of their journey with their book, mm-hmm. in some ways by, by allowing themselves not to dive into too much research early on, there's more likelihood, there's more chance that they are going to get to the end of the first draft, which then gives them the opportunity to start filling in the blanks. And I love this. I like if mm. I was ever going to write a historical novel, I would I think I would totally go down that route as well. Cause to me it makes total sense. Yes. And it's advice I wish I would listen to more myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've got but it's so- fun though, isn't it? Once you get delved, like you were talking about, you know, you know, looking at all these different things to do with poison and like it once you get into it. It becomes fascinating, and we just like to feed our own fascination about learning new, new information. I know, I know. But I'm in, I'm in the fir- the very first rough draft of I'm um, like twelve thousand words into to book four, and I just I just spent half an hour looking at bricks this morning. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> as you do. It's, you do. It's a scene in a crypt in a church. So it's like I'm discovering about oh, so uh, bricks that come from this place are red. Oh, so maybe if I, I can have a character mention that. And, and of course, you know, you've got Kentish Ragstone. That's a whole other thing, too. And then you've got these others. And it's just, it becomes, you know, half, look at, oh, half an hour's gone. Bloody yeah. hell, I should have been yeah. right. Although you know? there's something to be said, though, that when you start to get, because you can become an expert on something in half an hour now, can't you, on Google? I mean, <laughs> in terms of like really deep on a very, very specific subject. But in some ways, I do think there's also the counter to that, which is when you do find out something really interesting. And I remember this happening with Back to Reality when we started like really delving. I mean, I went off in looking at the, um, I was researching pyramids in Egypt because of the pyramid stage yes. at Glastonbury. Yeah, yeah, and we yeah. started learning about ley lines and all of the, the, the Glastonbury mythology. Mm. I was just loving it. But the thing is, when you start to delve in and you find something, Sometimes that thing that you find, you don't go, you don't go in looking for it, but when you find it, you suddenly think, ooh, 
and it just drops in as if it's been waiting there all the time. And I think that can be the benefit if you're stuck. Sometimes the research can reveal something which you can might become really central to your to your novel. Yeah, that that aha moment when you discover and it's funny i've just done two interviews this week that are going to be coming in a few weeks so uh dion mayer is coming back oh, to the I podcast love dion, dion is brilliant. fantastic and uh rachel block uh who's new to the podcast best-selling author and they both funny enough talked about exactly the same thing which is that that thing when you put two things together and you go ha this is it this is my way in yeah and dion said it's it's like chemistry it's yeah. that you know you put two elements together and they fizz and you get something is, new. So yeah, it's something weirdly that um you know Nina's dis- discussed and we've got coming up in a few future episodes and it is uh, it is you bounce up and down and you think yes 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 this is the thing and it's really exciting. So yeah, it is yeah. worth doing. It's definitely yeah. worth doing. I've delved into recently um money money printing machines and how they work. Uh-huh. How how money is printed? Yeah, for what I'm working on. So that's kind of Excellent. interesting. Yeah, cool, cool, but cool. fascinating stuff. <laughs> uh, now, one of the other things that that was that you mentioned, you actually referenced this this um, point about how Agatha Christie's kind of like waits until the end to like almost a chapter before to decide who's done it. I heard this fascinating story, and again, I don't know. I don't know what's I, nowadays. Who knows what's what's true or not? But. Yep. What what I heard that Agatha Christie did, now this might have just been for one novel or it might be something she did later on, is she would write down all of, like a Cluedo game, she'd write down all of the objects, all of the rooms, and all of the people oh. on cards. Right. And she would throw the cards up into the air, like <laughs> chuck them onto the floor, and ba- based on where things landed, that became the plot. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, sounds like a bloody mess, but... Uh, <laughs> but isn't well, it cool I mean, how you kind of like just... You, so you, it dep- you leave I, I, it to fate almost as to like who, you know, what the murder weapon is, who's it most near, that's the person that committed the murder. And yeah. then all the different other characters in there. And so, yeah, it was a really, really interesting way of going about doing something like that. I mean, it, all this points to the fact that Agatha Christie, I think, was a very mischievous character. I yes. think she was like, and I think this is this is an essential element of being an author. You have to love winding people up. <laughs> you have to love teasing people yeah. and and saying, "Come here, come here, it's over here, it's this thing over." Ah, it's not this thing at all. It's this thing over here yeah. again. A bit like a magician, you know, misdirection, all that kind of thing. No okay. matter what genre you're writing in, I think you have to tease people and say, "You think it's this kind of thing." It's not this kind of thing at all. And then you surprise, and if it's done well, you delight the reader with it. And I think, you know, Agatha, I think, I I, I have a feeling she was a wind-up merchant. I think she loved teasing people. Hitchcock was the same. Oh yeah, Hitchcock was the same. You know, he 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 delighted in you know in his movies setting up expectations and then completely undermining them. M Night Shyamalan does a similar kind of thing too. But yeah, so it's um. I think. I mean, the thing with the Agatha Christie told this thing to Brian Aldiss, and Brian Aldiss was one of the giants of science fiction, terrific writer in his own right, massive award winner and bestseller. Uh, so she, you know, she didn't know the murder until the penultimate chapter. And I think the the thing that we can take from that that we can use is that as she's writing, she's not focusing on the murderer. She's not thinking, "Ooh, this is the person who did it, so I'll, I'll put all my focus on him or her. And then, it, Whereas she's writing an ensemble, and any one of these people could be the antagonist. And I think that's why when you watch something like, you know, read something, rather, sorry, like Death on the Nile or Murder on the Orient Express or And Then There Were None, where you've got, a, you know, a rogues gallery of people and it could be any one of them, then they're all fun. They're all delightful. They're all, oh, it could be him or it could be her. It could be them. Uh, and then at the end, maybe that's when she threw the cards in the air and said, yeah, right. And then made him. the decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, wow. yeah. So fascinating. Um, yeah, I think that's something we, at least we can – take away from that but yeah Agatha Christie big wind-up merchant absolutely well it's, it reminds me of a band that some people may know of called 21 Pilots who've become very big recently like millions of followers on YouTube and they're a, they're a duo funny funny group you know funny funny couple right so 
what they decided very early on in their careers, they knew that they were always going to be asked the question, so how did you guys meet? And mm. so they made they, they made a decision that every single time they get asked that question, they have to make up a new story on the spot. Yes. So every time you see them interviewed, they'll come up with, and it's the most hilarious, like, well, we were altar boys at church. And then, <laughs> you know, and next one, you know, like they, 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 they met, you know, like they, they got into a fight in a bar once and then, you know, they you know, made friends and made up and then formed a band. And it just every single time. So, you know, it, it helps to be mischievous, I think, if you want to be a, a writer that, that... Mischievous. There's mischievous. no such word as mischievous, <laughs> right? That's true. I, this is one of my bugbears. Oh, don't come to Canada. The, everyone talk, honestly, <laughs> aluminum. I mean, every every word, it's aluminum, alu- aluminum is fine. That's fine. Because apparently aluminum is the right way to do it. Aluminium is the wrong way to do it. Oh. There's all kinds of things. Like uh, Lieutenant and Lieutenant. Yes. Apparently Lieutenant, I've spoken to Susie Dent about this. Uh, apparently Lieutenant uh, came about because the U was mistaken for a V by junior officer and was too frightened to correct someone. Anyway, ah. so yeah, it's... Uh, things the, you yeah. wouldn't know you'd learn on the bestseller experiment, eh? Oh, no, yeah. Absolutely well, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Let's so, talk yeah. about this. Let's talk about this crazy alternative universe that Nina lives in. I mean, how can you write? I, I mean, this is this this is up there. Okay. How can you write an Agatha Christie's book and write about the character Rogue for Marvel? That that is up there with hey. like the, the the children's authors who also do horror movies. Right. <laughs> it's just like we, we've had them on the show. We have. We have. I know <laughs> Mark it's brilliant. Be Nick Osler. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. I love the fact that um there's such a diversity because a lot of people want to be to be like that as an author. A lot of people, I think the idea of writing very, very narrow and deep, you know, becoming an expert in one very specific niche. Uh, many people love to write across the board. And the fact that. Well, she, yeah. I mean, she writes, she writes those under um, a pseudonym. And I love the fact she said a pseudonym is like a superhero secret identity, which I love. Suddenly I'm interested in it now, but yeah. this, this, this whole thing of, you know, I mean, writers can write. And when you're writing for Marvel or Star Wars or any of these big intellectual properties, these big IPs, you are a writer for hire. You know, they've they've come up with an idea or they have some sort of thing they need to put into their their universe. And then you... you And, and for more on this, folks, uh, and I put links in the show notes because uh, we spoke to Kevin Scott on episode 99. Kevin Scott is the king of writing for IPs. I mean, he writes for Star Wars and Marvel and all kinds of stuff. And James Swallow as well. We did an episode, James has written for Star Trek and and games and stuff. We did a really good um, deep dive with him too. So I'll put links to those in the show notes. You can go and check those out. Uh, So yeah, you are, you're a writer for hire. There are usually quite, um, I mean, talk about reader expectations, you know, very high reader expectations. Certain things have to happen. Certain things have to hit. Also, these books usually have to hit a certain word count. The delivery, as you said, she had, what, six weeks to write the first draft? She's yeah. doing 10 pages a day. Yeah, 20 you pages know. she mentioned that was an, yeah, an yeah. absolutely insane. And actually, for people who aren't aware of the term IP, that's intellectual property. Intellectual that, right? Properties, so it's yeah, when people, yeah, yeah. like a company like, like big Marvel like, own a universe and they've, you know, they, they're trying to build it. But it's it's fascinating. And hear ye, hear ye, people, messy first drafts. We hear it again and again and again. This is something that we really want people to take on board. Messy first drafts. Enjoy them, love them, care for them, and <laughs> ultimately know they're going to get better. So just and, and, get to the end. And that will be very... Uh collaborative as well in that she'll be going to the the people at marvel and saying okay is this the kind of thing you wanted and they'll give her feedback on that so she gets guidance guidance at the right points rather than exactly that classic thing of like writing the whole thing and then finding out you know it's just gone off in completely the wrong direction so yeah but that that idea there seems to be a theme in this episode about assuming identities you know and being someone else and i think sometimes you know, we do this as an author when we pretend to be characters and we write about characters, but also we can, I mean, why shouldn't she write Marvel? Why shouldn't she write, you know, gory horror stories? If, if I mean, just look at my bookshelves, you know, around, well, maybe not those, they're all kind of genre stuff, but around the house, I've got classics and I've got comic books and I've got, you know, serious stuff and funny stuff. This is all the stuff that I love to read. And you'll be the same and all of our listeners will be the same. We don't all just read the one thing. Mm. So why should writers just have to write the one thing? On alter egos, 
I want to yes. share something with you, Mark, that came You're up. You're Batman! In... <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> only, only during the night times, though. <laughs> By day. But, but the... Um, the thing that the thing that I was coaching about actually only only I think last month in the in the academy in the bestseller academy, and this is something I want everyone out there to really really pay attention to because I think this is something that a lot of people have never even considered as a writer, but writers tend to be and I'm generalizing I'm generalizing but they tend to be very self critical, like who mm. isn't really but yeah, and also yeah, writers tend to be pretty um they, they they need their confidence built up like it tends to get mm. bashed down a lot especially during the process of writing because yeah. you're gonna like here's your first head it's like oh my gosh and we we have a lot of opportunities as writers to bash ourselves down and prove to ourselves that we're no good that we're never mm. going to be good authors we're never going to we're never going to you know make it we're never going to finish that book we're never going to get a bestseller and I pointed out to everyone in the academy that day, I said, look at you all. I said, look at all you incredible writers. There you are creating all of these amazing characters, with your brilliant imagination, and you're going into the minds of all these amazing characters and you're building this story around this universe of something that you've mainly created in your head in most cases. I said, but the one character you've left out is yourself. Why don't you create an alter ego for yourself, like a superhero ego almost, for yourself as the writer? And instead of thinking yourself as this ridiculously like, you know, I'm never going to, you know, I'm never going to make it, thinking small, being beating yourself up all the time and bashing yourself up and being your worst critic. Why don't you step into this role as a writer and as if you're in a play and you're given the role, right, you are a best-selling author, Right. So play that role. What would happen to people if they actually were able to, you know, almost convince themselves that they're that character? And just whilst they write, mm. just whilst they write, they write like a best-selling author. And then, and then they can go back to being all self-critical once they've written those three or four pages today. Right. <laughs> go back and do all that. But when you sit down at your desk, take on that persona of like, I'm here and this is the role I've been given and this is the role I'm now going to do. I promise you, if people were to do that more and more, they're writing would go through the roof. And I can tell you why, because it kind of happened to me in, in my music journey. It was the day that I decided I was no longer going to be um, looking up to all of my icons in the music world. And I thought, what if I actually wanted to be their peer? What if I wanted to actually, mm. um, you know, look them in the eye and say, yeah, I want to hang out with you backstage at these gigs. I, I want to have an album that's, you know, sold as many as you or had the same amount of exposure. And I think that is transferable into every career but particularly within writing because of the fact that we're creating characters. Let's create one for ourselves. Yeah. And do, and do you know what else happens when you meet those people who have had massive success and doing really well? You discover they are just as just riddled with doubt totally. as you are. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're normal human beings, ordinary yeah. human beings who've just had an incredible adventure with their, yeah. with their even, even if Even if they've got a massive ego and lots of bluster, you will see, if you have a all. conversation with them, well, you'll see you'll see a little, you know, well, we know don't crack we? in the armor. How many million selling authors have we interviewed who've always said, it doesn't matter how many how many books I've sold, it doesn't matter if this is book three or twenty, I still think this is the biggest pile of poo I've ever written. <laughs> you know, the most recent and you just hear that again and again. And it keep in some ways it keeps people keeps people sharp, right? It well, means I, you don't I d- get complacent. I've just had uh, something i've just been editing a couple of books for clients and they're good books i've really enjoyed them and you know i I do a report and i give them feedback and it's just happened twice in the last last couple of weeks where i've said this is great this has really got something i think you you know you've these are the positives you know and the feedback was either are you are you sure you know, they were kind of, I, I, you know, they had no idea. They'd lost all sight of what was good and what was bad. And that's Complete. why that kind of well, external that, validation is so important. That's huge though as well, because, you know, we can't see the forest for the trees when we're the writer because we're so close to our work. With the, we're sometimes the worst judge of our work yeah. because we're so close to it. We know every flaw, every single spelling mistake. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's why we need somebody else to look at it. Yeah. Hence yeah. the editor. Yes. So another another part of the journey, and I found this was interesting that Nina said about her book designer who actually read her book. Yes, that is quite unusual, actually. That is Which very is, unusual. You know, yeah. you know, you've got a, a good book designer when, right? Dot yeah. dot dot. Because yeah. I remember we yeah. when we reached out and we were getting our, you know, looking for a book cover designer. I always remember it was fantastic. 
that during the first conversations, there were characters referenced and you thought, ah, mm. they've actually yeah. read the story. Because I think as an, as a, it's a bit like being an actor in some ways where you're kind of looking at, you know, the character you're going to play and getting into that character. Um, for a book designer to read the book, they can really bring the elements of the story into that yeah. cover. And, yeah. uh, but it, but it's a big ask as well, because like, you know, that's a, a lot of like upfront investment for an edit, a book cover designer to do. But when you, when they do read it, you know, you've got a good one. It is really unusual though, because book des- particularly if they're working at a publisher, they'll be working on so many oh. different projects at the same time. But clearly this, you know, maybe the designer was a big Agatha Christie fan and just jumped in because yeah. um, it, what, what usually happens at publisher is the editor puts together a cover brief mm-hmm. uh, and says, okay. And it's usually, it was, it, it will give the designer a couple of elements from the novel. So the editor will have read it and said, okay, I want, so in for say the crow folk. So they would have said, okay, there's a village, there's a church, there's a girl on a bike. There's, there are crows that maybe have a spitfire in the air. So all of these elements come together. Um, and then, uh, you know, you start getting those first drafts in. So they, they are working with, you know, a few clues, a few essential elements that they then put together. And there will also be comparisons to say, I want it to look like this book or this kind of genre and, and go from there. So, yeah, I think Nina was, um, you know, really, really kind of, uh, blessed to get a cover designer like that yeah absolutely absolutely brilliant stuff well thank you so much nina for coming on the show and we wish you every success with Mm. your book um i'm sure it'll be an app well it already is but i'm sure it'll continue to be an absolute (laughs) smash and um and mark so this week on social media yeah we've got some uh, good news uh good news as oh look you remember you asked about cat cafes Last week, I did. Yeah, in the Erica I knew I James. Might regret this. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just um, j- just Liz got in touch, and this is uh, this might be the same one you were talking about. Liz says uh, had to rave about my favourite cat cafe here on Vancouver Island after oh. listening to the latest episode. Kitties and cream. Does that ring any bells? Kitties. No, I, I was I'm the one I saw was in Seattle. I didn't even know there was one here. Yes, I have to go check it out with my yeah. cat. Kitties and cream, although I have attempted three different times to write there while visiting and have yet to be successful. The cats won't stand for that sort of nonsense. So thanks for that list. Well, cats, cat, there's no point even even trying to write in a cat cafe because from my knowledge of cats and every writer with a cat out there will agree, you can't write with a cat in the room because they're just going to sit on your keyboard, sit on your book sit on your lap and get in the way between you and the screen, you and the book. They're absolute geniuses. They're like, they're like the writer's nemesis. They're the writer's nemesis. It's like that book's not important. Pet me, pet me, love me. Brilliant. <laughs> well, uh, now, we had Darren James. Uh, we mentioned Darren James on the podcast last week uh, during social media. But uh, just to say, um, Darren actually writes as uh, Amy Vaughan. And she's written the book Soul Cat, a feline memoir. And there is going to be a launch. So if you're in Glasgow on the 20th of April, <laughs> another cat cafe, go to the Purple Cat Cafe in Glasgow. <laughs> so come to the launch. Oh, actually, no, I've got this wrong. There are two. There are two launches. So there's oh, one on April the 13th at 7 p.m. at the Eagle Bookshop in Bedford. Uh, and the illustrator will be there as well, Ellie Pop. And on April 20th in the Purple Cat Cafe in Glasgow. Two launches. That's nice. Purple? But you know, cat. Yeah. No, that brings up all kinds of. Crane. It's two. It's two R's as well. Purple. Oh, pur. I see what they did there. Very good. Clever. Very Clever. good. Very well, there you Clever. go, folks. I mean, that's a whole new thing. You know, like what other animal-based cat book? I mean, we've had we've had a launch this last month. In a, we talked about the launch in the phone box. We've got launches in cat cafes. Okay, if you've had, if you're planning. Yeah, if you're planning the, the bizarrest book launch ever, then let's drop a note and we'll maybe give you a plug on the show. Okay, another theme for this year. <laughs> yeah, no, why not? Why Why yeah, not? Absolutely. Um, we've also, uh, Inkborn Blade uh, got in touch. Now, 200 words a day challenge. It's It really has been helping people. Inkborn Blade got in touch. Says, I suppose I, I, I check back in with this. He says, I'm working on a mystery novel currently, which is above 20,000 words. The 200 words a day challenge has been keeping me going since the 1st of February um, on a streak of 50 days with an average of 420 words a day. Fantastic. This works, folks. 200 words a day absolutely works. Uh, and talking of streaks, I want people to get in touch if they are having a streak. I do see the same people 
people every day. Ella Craig, who is at Ella Craig Writes. I think Ella's been checking in every single day. Ella, get in touch. We'd love to know what your, your streak is. Uh, Steve, Steve Gowland. I mean, Steve is, you know, just uh, an absolute machine uh, for this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, folks, get in touch with your 200 words a day streaks. We want to know. And I also want to hear doing. about, I want to hear about people who start it. And do seven days because I think d- doing a seven day streak is the beginning of the magic. And so if you're if you're if you're yeah, willing yeah. to give it a go, if you're if you think no, I can't do this, try it, try it. Two hundred wordchallenge.com. It's our it's our it's our free um, you know challenge that we put out to the world. We are. I need to check the totals now. We're over twenty million words mark of, of words banked, and that's that's not even a portion of the Ooh. words that have been written. So, folks, this is this is happening. There's been a lot of books now written through this challenge. So, 200wordchallenge.com. Try it for seven days. If you get a seven-day streak, drop us a note or go to Twitter or Facebook and drop us a note there, and we'll also maybe drop your name on the show, which is all good publicity as you're building yeah, your author career, folks. So, yeah, go for it. Yeah. As featured on the bestsellerexperiment.com. Come and find us at uh, bestsellerexperiment.com. You'll find a contact tab there. You can drop us an email there. Uh, we're on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment, Twitter and Instagram at Bestseller XP. And listen, folks, word of mouth beats everything. If you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend us to your writer friends, recommend us to your writer groups, the Facebook groups, whatever. That's the, that's what keeps us going. Uh, and subscribe, hit that subscribe button because that really helps keep us visible as well. And any ratings and reviews are much appreciated. Absolutely. And on top of the 200 word challenge, if you would like to go deep with Mark and I, have us as your coaches twice a month live mm. Zoom calls that we do on craft and life coaching, plus access to 30 over 30 courses and an amazing community of writers do check out the bestseller academy that's academy.bestsellerexperiment.com so mr stay thank you so much sir have a great great week enjoy whatever falls your way maybe some more soap operas for next week to talk about who knows maybe you could do double whammy get eastenders as well <laughs> there's all kinds of potentials for unwelcome yeah. in eastenders as well dum, people dum, knocking dum, on doors dum, right? dum, dum, dum. <laughs> excellent everyone listen and that leaves us just to say thank you so much for for tuning in this week we can't wait to be with you again next week have a really great writing week go for it maybe play for a day of being that amazing best-selling writer in your mind see what happens and let us know let us know if it makes a difference Mm. all right folks have a good one and it's a goodbye from mark one and a goodbye from mark two goodbye bye